I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking with the Wall Street Journal Supreme Court correspondent, Jess Braven, and discussing whether Justice Kennedy will in fact retire. We hope everyone had a great 4th of July. Justice Gorsuch certainly had an interesting one. He returned home to Colorado to ride in a parade where he was met with many cheers, but also a few protests that one newspaper reported um, protesters held signs and shouted things at Gorsuch about the U.S. Constitution. I would love to know what they were shouting at him. (laughs) Me too. Uh, So anyway, before we get into our interview today with Jess Braven, we'd like to salute Lyle Denniston, the dean of the Supreme Court Press. He's retired after covering the court for 58 years. He worked for the Wall Street Journal, the uh, the Washington Star, which is uh, no longer in existence, uh, the Baltimore Sun, the Boston Globe, SCOTUS Blog, and most recently, the uh, National Constitution Center's Constitution Daily. Uh, when he was the lead reporter for SCOTUS Blog, the hashtag Waiting for Lyle would trend on Twitter on decision days as people tuned into the site's live blog and waited for word from Lyle about which opinions would be released. Uh, when Lyle began working this beat, Earl Warren, Felix Franks, Frankfurter, and Hugo Black sat on the court. The court had recently decided uh, the school desegregation case, Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, and Chief Justice Roberts was only three years old. Uh, in an interview with the New York Times, Lyle said that in his six decades covering the court, the only decision that really surprised him was the D.C. versus Heller decision when the court held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms. On uh, on the court's final day in in session this term, Chief Justice Roberts took a moment to recognize Lyle and his contribution to the field of journalism. We wish Lyle Denniston a very happy and well-deserved retirement. Um, we have today with us Jess Braven, the Wall Street Journal Supreme Court correspondent, author of Terror Courts, Rough Justice at Guantanamo Bay, and Squeaky, The Life and Times of Lynette Alice Fromm. He previously worked at the LA Times, and his work has appeared in the Washington Post, Harper's Bazaar, and Spy Magazine, among many other publications. Like Dahlia Lithwick, we're members of the cult of Jess Braven here <laughs> at SCOTUS 101, <laughs> so we're, we're thrilled to have you here today, Jess. Uh, so our first question... How would you sum up the Supreme Court's term, uh, 2016 term? Uh, well, you know, there we can look at it in terms of the substantive decisions, and we can look at it in terms of the uh, uh, broader context. You know, and those tell somewhat different uh, different stories, right? I mean, the, uh, the decisions themselves uh, were not blockbusters. This was not a year where the court was breaking a lot of new ground, and uh, we think that's not an accident. Most of the term, there were eight justices, and they fall very uh, you know neatly into two uh, blocks, left and right. And so, to get to five, uh, people had to give up some ground. And the way it looked to us, uh, you know, looking back over the term was that overall conservatives got, you know, most of what they wanted, but not as much of, uh, as what they might have uh, might have taken if they had a secure fifth vote. And uh, from the left wing of the court, uh, you saw justices, particularly Kagan and Breyer, uh, joining opinions that maybe would not be the ones that would occur to them if left to decision, decide the case by themselves. But they were uh, sufficiently uh, uh, modest in ambition that, uh, you know, the, the goal of a unified court as opposed to a 4-4 split uh, was more important. They saw some, some value in the stability of the law and the institution. So uh, that's what we saw throughout the term. Obviously, for the last sitting in April, we have our long-awaited new justice, uh, Neil Gorsuch, uh, taking time out from riding in his uh, parades uh, <laughs> to uh, decide cases. And uh, obviously, uh, the, the court was uh, instantly uh, changed by his presence. Uh, he spoke uh, frequently uh, and confidently in oral arguments, and he 
wrote uh, many opinions, uh, one a majority opinion, the rest uh, separate opinions. Uh, and uh, we saw the direction he would like the court to go in. Uh, the rest of the court isn't quite there yet, but uh, we'll see if, uh, if uh, the others uh, wake up to the, the wisdom he brings uh, next term. He certainly made a splash in his first two months on the court. Definitely. Um, so, Jess, if you could give an award out for the best opinion and worst opinion of the term, what would you pick? Uh, well, I think uh, the worst opinions would go to me. I would. I probably have the worst <laughs> opinions. Um, gosh, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, it's not for me. I'm not a, a film critic, if you will. I would be more like the, the movie feature writer. So I'm not in a position to uh, judge uh, the judges. But uh, in terms of, of, of perhaps we could say some surprises that we saw that are worth looking for what implications they'll have in the future. Uh, one uh, is the decision that uh, Justice Thomas assigned to Justice Kagan involving uh, redistricting in North Carolina. Uh, it was uh, it, it certainly moved the needle a bit towards uh, having the court to be able to examine uh, partisan gerrymanders uh, when they uh, overlap with racial gerrymanders, when they can't be distinguished. Uh, how that plays out in future cases isn't uh, clear, but certainly uh, it was not the decision that, uh, uh, that North Carolina uh, General Assembly wanted, uh, and it, if anything, strengthens the, uh, the court's uh, uh, gerrymandering jurisprudence, or at least uh, allowing courts to review uh, maps. Um, another uh, one I think that we will look at with uh, some interest in the uh, future uh, is the uh, the uh, property rights decision, um, the Murr case, where the court, uh, in somewhat of a surprise, uh, stopped its uh, march forward towards uh, expanding uh, property rights against uh, zoning and land use regulations and permitting regulations. Uh, the court, with sometimes small, sometimes uh, quite broad majorities, had been pushing back on uh, uh, regulation of land that uh, interfered or disadvantaged landowners in a number of uh, recent cases. This time they didn't. They was a it uh, fully uh, upheld uh, the, the state and, and the county's uh, authority to uh, 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 determine land use and how you classify properties and which parcels belong to which. And uh, uh, I think it will give, uh, you know, City planners, uh, they'll feel a much uh, much freer hand, certainly more than people who uh, write up the municipal sign ordinance do uh, after the Gilbert case that uh, Justice Thomas uh, wrote a couple of years ago. So the uh, the Supreme Court justices are on their break right now. Many of them are out of town. What do Supreme Court reporters do during the summer break? Do you just like chill all together, like by a pool somewhere? We work nonstop <laughs> because you know the you know it takes a lot of work to make it look easy. Uh, no, uh, what what? Uh, well, I can tell you what what uh, has happened. Certainly, for a fair portion of my summers, is that there has been a vacancy on the court, and that has required uh, you know reporting what's uh, you know essentially a political story. Was we've had the confirmation of, of different justices, so that usually usually takes place over the summer, uh, and uh, not this time, of course, because of the peculiarities of the Scalia vacancy. Uh, so that has been one issue, one thing that comes up. Um, another thing, which I would say, pretty much. Uh, I wouldn't call it a dirty little secret. I, I would not advertise it to the members of the court, but it's the time we update our obituaries. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, you know, newspapers uh, have uh, on file uh, uh, obituaries for uh, important people. We are not making any kind of actuarial predictions about anybody, but look, you know, they've got tigers at the national zoo. If one gets loose, you know, who knows, you know, what could be happening. What? So therefore, we'd like to have those uh, uh, ready to go. So that's one thing that. 
that I think uh, we all do at some point uh, over the summer. Um, uh, there are, uh, you know, some things required to prepare for the upcoming term. There also are, you know, in my case, a number of uh, feature stories and things I've had to sort of push off to the side, many of which are legal related, some not. I mean, two years ago, I went and uh, the, I did a feature story about a, uh, uh, a, a, a you might call it a pre-enactment of, uh, of, uh, um, of uh, Mad Max uh, and uh, the uh, Road Warrior world, uh, sort of a kind of like a think of it as like a Civil War, uh, you know, reenactment. And this is, you know, people who actually go out to the desert and uh, pre-enact the uh, apocalypse, the nuclear uh, wasteland and so <laughs> forth, where they are all dressed up and portraying, you know, characters who would be living in that world. And it's really quite a remarkable. So, you know, occasional Was things. Was Charlize are, Theron there? You know, um, no. <laughs> uh, but many cars that looked like the ones in the movies, and there was an absolutely fantastic um, humongous, Lord Humongous, if you remember from The Road Warrior. That guy is incredible. I mean, he just, he, the, you know, method acting uh, really uh, produced a, a tremendous performance. So, in fact, you know, he does parties as well. So <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> um, so, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, dead or living, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Um, I'd say, Justice Fortas, what were you thinking? Uh, uh, and I thought of Justice Fortas actually because you mentioned Lyle Denniston uh, uh, earlier, uh, one of my great uh, predecessors and, and some really the standard that I think we all seek to emulate in the Supreme Court press room. But he was asked very recently who he thought the best writer on the court was during his many years covering it. And he said Justice Abe Fortas, who served from 1965 to 1969 or 70 and was uh, forced uh, off the court because of a slush fund his pals had set up for him. And, uh, uh, and, and again, it's like uh, sometimes you think, you know, you know, people with, you know, tremendous uh, power and responsibility can just sort of, you know, squandering it for, you know, venal or, 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 or foolish reasons. And, uh, you know, and, and he had a strong impact during his, his years there. So that, that might be one person. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to harangue Justice uh, Whitaker, who who Lyle also covered. Uh, he uh, he uh, uh, was uh, pushed off the court by Chief Justice Warren because he uh, had a nervous breakdown and he had enough problems. I wouldn't want to uh, add to them. Uh, but uh, really, I mean, you know, there are <laughs> there's so many of them that are just uh, fascinating. I mean, Chief Justice Taney is someone who I would be very interested in talking to because he began his career. Uh, I wouldn't call him an abolitionist, but he was uh, he defended an abolitionist minister who was preaching to uh, uh, an audience of slaves in Maryland uh, about the you know about how slavery was an abomination you know and that led the Maryland uh, slave owners and Maryland authorities to to uh, take him to court take the minister to court and Tawney as a young lawyer defended him and obviously by the end of his career he's you know notorious for the Dred Scott decision what what happened where how does you know how does someone who at least is sympathetic uh, to uh, you know, abolitionism, or at least open to representing that and, you know, uh, uh, to the anger of the community he lived in. You lived in Maryland. Where, how does he get to, to writing Dred Scott? So, I mean, there, there are so many of these questions. Uh, if I could pick one, um, uh, 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 the, uh, <laughs> uh, 
it, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I mean, it's just a you know, it's a privilege just to listen to the ones we have today, much less all the ones that uh, came before them. I think I would have gone with Justice Daniel. I want to ask him about um, his duel. He was the only Supreme <laughs> Court justice to kill someone in a duel. Yes, that was uh, from a previous Supreme trivia round where Tiffany stumped me. God, I hope it wasn't a reporter. <laughs> I, it was a businessman Love from that. Maryland. Yeah, political dispute. I'm sure he had it coming. Uh, so, turning back to. Uh, to the cases at the court. Um, what are your predictions for the big cases next term? Particularly, there's the travel ban case and then the uh, the cake case. You know, those are those are ones which you know coming into it. Uh, it's hard to say because they both come up in in unusual ways. I mean, the cake case. This is you know does the uh, does Jack uh, Phillips, the owner of the masterpiece uh, cakery, I guess in Lakewood, Colorado, is that the town? Some town, Colorado. Uh, you know, saying that it would uh, it would uh, 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 it would compel him to endorse uh, uh, same-sex marriage, which he views as, as uh, opposed by, by his religion and would essentially compel him to support a practice that, that's antithetical to his, uh, his faith. Um, that case, the court sat on for a very, very long time until it decided to take it, and it did not take it until the appearance of Justice Gorsuch. And the theory in the press room before then was there must be some dissent from denial of certiorari that's taking a long time to write. And maybe there was one, but the appearance of Gorsuch somehow uh, led the court to decide to take it. So if he was the fourth vote to take it, uh, it means that there is at least one vote up for grabs, that we don't have a, a clear outcome uh, ready to go in that case. So it means that uh, we probably are looking at a very close case one way or the other, and there are many, many implications for what the court says. So uh, it's 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 hard to see. I mean, the easiest thing for them to do is just affirm the Colorado uh, uh, appellate court that uh, upheld their uh, anti-discrimination law. Uh, that's the easiest thing, from my point of view, not the most interesting thing that they could be doing. Um, the travel ban case, uh, on the other hand, comes up sort of in a very rapid uh, uh, way. And unlike the Cake case, which was something that we all anticipated, something of that sort would be going through the courts, and similar cases have gone up elsewhere in other states. Um, this one, obviously, is a result of the election. It's the result of the uh, aggressive uh, policy on uh, immigration and uh, supervision of uh, entry to the country that uh, President uh, Trump has, has promoted. And it moves up in a real extraordinary way after uh, you know, very remarkable rulings by lower courts that were extremely critical of the administration and you know, and, and what you know, some found were actually ill motives. I mean, not just looking at the at the result. The court took a very moderate try to uh, you know cool down everybody. Uh, of course, uh, when it allowed part of the order to go into effect against people with no contact with the U.S. and uh, allowed uh, and and stayed part for people who have a lot of contact and left unclear <laughs> what's in between because that seems to be a matter of of some legal dispute right now. Uh, but what they do with that, I mean, I think from their point of view, if the issue is moot by the fall, that's great. Otherwise, they are going to have to wade into executive power and and piercing the uh, you know the the legal arguments for the motivation behind uh, when we're t uh, we're talking about the White House. And they've done similar things where the stakes were much lower. We were not talking about asserted national security. We weren't talking about the president. We were talking about you know state laws and things that are of, of somewhat less consequence. So I think they are not itching for uh, the opportunity to tell uh, President Trump 
where his uh, powers end. Uh, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's possible they won't have to. If they do have to, um, because some of the lower court rulings, particularly the Fourth Circuit, are based so much on, you know, kind of extrinsic tweets and other comments by the president and other people close to him, uh, the political context that we're in when the case is heard and decided may have a kind of influence on the, what the court does in a way beyond the, you know, what we usually see or expect. So are there any other big legal issues you see coming before the court next term? Well, there's some they've already taken that, uh, you know, are significant, uh, uh, maybe a little less less dramatic. I mean, already the court has taken uh, some cases that will look at the role of uh, mandatory arbitration in the labor context about whether employers can uh, require employees to uh, uh, resolve, dis- you know, employment disputes through arbitration. Uh, there's a contrary ruling from the uh, Obama era labor, uh, National Labor Relations Board, and that's very important, certainly to our readers, uh, about about what uh, employers and employees uh, uh, have in the way of rights. Um, there is going to be, we expect, a redo of the uh, public employee union uh, dues case and whether or not states can uh, require uh, their employees to uh, uh, pay unions uh, uh, for collective bargaining services as a condition of employment. We, uh, The court split 4-4 on that exact issue uh, the prior year, uh, only because of, we believe, Justice Scalia's uh, untimely death. And so now we have a nine-member court. Uh, and uh, we don't have any uh, direct rulings on this by Justice Gorsuch, but uh, you know I think the betting would be he, you know, tax closer to the the Scalia line than the uh, than uh, uh, the, the left of the court. So that's uh, you know very important for you know both employees and uh, labor relations, and also uh, a very important part of the Democratic Party coalition. I mean, you know, public employee unions are powerful members of that coalition, and. You know, uh, many commentators have said this is, you know, this case is more than about how you know, a few hundred dollars a public school teacher has to pay. It has broader implications really for the, the political uh, power base, uh, particularly in, uh, you know, uh, 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 Democratic leading states in the north and, and far west. Well, thanks, Jess. Uh, next, we're going to talk about swirling rumors of Justice Kennedy's retirement. They continue. Uh, So Justice Kennedy continues to play cat and mouse with SCOTUS watchers, the media, and President Trump over whether he will retire. Will he or won't he? It's the most pressing question of our time. Yes. So above the laws, David Latt has reported that uh, Justice Kennedy has only hired one clerk, uh, Clayton Kaczynski, the son of the Ninth Circuit, uh, Judge Alex Kaczynski for the 2018 term. Um, It's important to remember... Purely a coincidence. (laughs) the, The interview was conducted behind a screen with no names uh, attached, and uh, uh, it just happened that he picked the son of one of his own dear former law clerks. Exactly. Um, But it's important to remember that retired justices still get one law clerk. Um, Then Nina, uh, NPR's Nina Totenberg reported that Justice Kennedy has not hired any other clerks um, for that term, but he, and he actually let finalists know that he is considering retirement. Now, who knows um, if that's actually the case. It seems would be quite a bold thing for him, him to do and for those potential clerks to um, let other people know about it. Um, But David Ladd has also mentioned that uh, Justice Kennedy usually starts hiring in December or January. Um, But Totensburg reporting uh, that he's already interviewed some people um, is interesting. 
Yeah. So if President Trump has the opportunity to replace Justice Kennedy, this could have a pretty big impact on the direction of the court uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, particularly in areas where the court has drifted towards the left, advancing socially liberal causes. You know, these include gay rights, abortion, capital punishment, et cetera. Um, but he's also sided with conservatives in the areas of campaign finance, civil rights, religious liberty, and federalism. Uh, so basically, if it's a close case, uh, chances are Justice Kennedy is the deciding vote. That's right. Looking at five, four cases over the last 20 years, Kennedy was in the majority 75% of the time and uh, 90% of the time just the last five terms. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to the court if, in fact, King Kennedy is ready to retire. So we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Freedom of the Press edition, where we're going to try to stump our gracious guest, Jess Braven. We've got some tough ones this time. <laughs> Not that tough. Uh, are you ready? What's the prize? <laughs> uh, we'll ask you to come back to Heritage again. Uh, first question. What law sparked the first big debate in our country about the meaning of the free press clause? And I'll give you a hint if you want it. Yes. Our third president thought it was unconstitutional and chose not to enforce this law. Uh, was it Alien Sedition Act? That is correct. The Sedition Act, uh, there was a package of, of laws that were passed together, and specifically the Sedition Act of 1798 allowed the prosecution of individuals who published, quote, malicious remarks about the president or the government. There was a fierce debate about whether the Free Press Clause prohibited the government from punishing speech that was critical of the government. Fourteen people were prosecuted under this law, including a Vermont congressman, uh, Matthew Lyon, who was sentenced to four months in jail for writing an essay accusing the administration of ridiculous pomp, foolish adulation, and selfish avarice. Okay. That's unthinkable that anyone would make such an accusation against an occupant of, uh, of our highest office. <laughs> Those are fighting words. <laughs> okay, second question. Uh, the free press clause has generally been read uh, as protecting speakers and writers equally regardless of the medium. So no matter if it's newspapers, movies, or books. Uh, but which mediums, for historical reasons, have uh, been given less constitutional protections? Um, which mediums? Uh, do I get a, a hint about which era, perhaps, or is it? Uh... Um, well, there was a 1997 case that um, kind of went through and detailed this. Um, let's see. Uh, 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 which mediums? Uh, well, we certainly know that, um, uh, I mean, you know, obscenity is not protected. Um, 1997 was, uh, was that the Internet case involving uh, the... Uh, the um, uh, decent, you call it. Gosh, you've got me. Which uh, which medium? So uh, it's TV and oh, radio. Oh, right, right. Of course, those those are owned by the public. Yes, correction. Uh, correct. Yes, that was. And, and then more recently, we had the FCC uh, case involving uh, Bono and uh, and uh, Paris Hilton and so forth. And they're uh, <laughs> rather uh, uh, colorful, but one might now say presidential speech. Uh, and they, uh, yes, right, because those are owned by the public and uh, and uh, available to children. So, uh, uh, yes, there is a, uh, uh, the FCC licenses can be contingent on uh, certain speech guidelines. Yes. And well, in Reno v. ACLU, the court pointed out um, that over the airwaves, radio and television broadcasting as a matter of history had received the most limited First Amendment protection, in large part because warnings could not adequately protect the listener from unexpected program content. I hope your listeners have been warned. <laughs> there are no trigger warnings at the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> Third question. In what case did the Supreme Court rule that prior restraint on publication violates the Free Press Clause? Was that the Pentagon Papers? 
there's an earlier one. And it actually was the case incorporating the free press clause against the states. Oh, 1930s. Mm, yes. Uh, uh, I don't know the title of the case. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, it was Near versus Minnesota. Yes, yes, yes. So the, the, right, right, the newspaper. Exactly. Yes. Near versus Minnesota. That was, uh, I have a book about that, that one of our editors gave me that I've read the first three chapters of. So I didn't know how it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Supreme Court roundly rejected prior restraint to quote Walter Sobchak from The Big Lebowski. Uh, this was the case called Near versus Minnesota. It dealt with a law that allowed the state to censor newspapers unless the publisher could show, quote, good motives and justifiable ends. Okay. Um, in which Supreme Court case did Justices Thomas and Scalia spar over the original meaning of the free speech in press clauses? I spar over the, the original meaning of free speech and press clauses. Um, huh. Should we give him a hint? It's from the mid-90s. From the mid-90s. And it might involve a state election commission. Nope, you'll have to you'll have to you'll have to uh, <laughs> humiliate me again. No, so this is McIntyre v. Ohio Elections Commission from 1995. Um, this case dealt with whether the government could outlaw anonymous campaign literature. Um, the court and Justice Thomas said no, and held that the freedom to publish anonymously is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, Justice Thomas highlighted the fact that the founders used anonymous speech most prominently in the Federalist Papers, um, and he thought that was dispositive as a matter of originalism. Uh, Justice Scalia disagreed, also as a matter of originalism, um, and thought that historical evidence of what people did at the time doesn't necessarily provide us with insight to what people believed they had a constitutional right to do. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. If I could, again, just sort of, you know, try to uh, salvage myself, you know, pick up on two of those points. One, of course, that same election commission came back with whether uh, with a, a, a challenge to their ability to punish political candidates for lying. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the court uh, held that uh, uh, struck down that provision of the uh, Ohio law that uh, basically did not want there to be a truth court uh, functioning under the state, although. In light of recent events, maybe maybe we need one. I don't know. Uh, and then and then the other point, though, I think uh, I'm more familiar with Justice Thomas's uh, differences when it comes to anonymous petitions. You know, being able to sign uh, a ballot uh, petitions anonymously, where he again was in conflict with Scalia and the rest of the court. So I assume that you know that's an outgrowth of their of their prior views. Mm-hmm. Final question: This clandestine report was the subject of a Supreme Court battle and was declassified and released to the public in 2011. And you mentioned it earlier. Uh, the Pentagon Papers? Correct. The Pentagon Papers detailing the U.S. government's involvement in Vietnam uh, from 1945 to 1967. Uh, this was leaked uh, to the New York Times by a RAND Corporation analyst. And uh, in a case that quickly reached the Supreme Court, the justices held that the Nixon administration had not met its heavy burden necessary to stop publication. Well, I think you did a pretty good job. Uh, we'd like to thank our guest, Jess Braven, for joining us. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tiffany H. Bates and at E.H. Slattery. 